Welcome to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. Ross Brannan is a financial advisor who knows it's not just about your teeth. He helps dental practice owners protect and maximize today's cash flow to plan for tomorrow's cash needs. Find him at rossbrannan.com. On the show, he brings together experts to help dental professionals looking to make smart money decisions to grow their income, turn their retirement goals into reality, and improve their lives. And now, here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Bob Winder. Bob is a professor of finance at BYU. He has experience as a private equity investor. He has run a DSO, and now he's on the sell side as a broker. Bob, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Ross. Well, I'm pretty sure that you're the first person in the world that I've met that has that type of background. So tell us your story. Well, I started in private equity. This is in the last recession. And we were, I was at a generalist fund buying businesses all over the map, lots of different industries. But coming out of the recession, we really wanted to invest in recession resistant assets. Healthcare was just a great place to park money in turbulent times, flight to quality. And back then, I feel like dental was really becoming in vogue. And this was obviously like 09, 10, 2008. Yeah, 10, 11, 12, that era. Right. So just coming out of the recession, folks got beaten down, investments did very, some did very poorly. Folks are looking for safer assets. And at this time, I mean, dental has been consolidating for years, but I feel like around this time, it really got Wall Street's attention. And so we were, I worked on a ton of dental deals. And back then, you know, a 10X multiple was crazy. It was crazy talk to think that we were paying 10 plus times for a transaction. You know, of course it's got even more inflated since then. But I really saw dental as an incredible place, very fragmented, a lot of growth, a lot of levers to grow, a lot of ways to win. So from there, I raised some capital on my own, went and bought a group of dental practices in Dallas, Texas, had no ties to Texas, but ended up being a wonderful place to be. Which, by the way, Dallas, Texas has more dental practices than people, don't they? Yeah, I think so. So it ended up being a wonderful place to be, but a horrible place to do business. So I learned very quickly that value is not created in a straight line. My my spreadsheet was a horrible predictor of what was actually going to happen. And it was, it was extremely difficult. I was competing against all the innovative upstart dental groups. You know, you can name so many DSOs that have a presence or are headquartered there. And we were completely undifferentiated. So I learned I had a really great education during those couple of years running the dental group. And, you know, having times when we're barely making payroll and your back's against the wall. During that time, I had a private equity friend of mine reach out and said, hey, Bob, I'm looking at this deal, six doctors. We have it under LOI for 20 million, but we're going to walk away. It's too hairy, too raw. Maybe I can introduce you. You can help them out. And, you know, I'm up to my eyeballs in this dental deal. But when your back's against the wall, you just say yes. So I said, yes. Yeah, let me take a look. We'll see. Sure enough, great business, great doctors, great strategy. But yeah, their financials were a mess. They didn't know how to talk to private equity, but I did. So I worked with them, got them cleaned up, ready to go on the same page, took them to market. And back then, you know, took them to market to 40 or so groups. Now we do 10 times that. I thought that was a broad process, 
but ended up transacting with a really good East Coast private equity fund, healthcare specific for 40 million. So that's when I realized, okay, this is what I need to be doing. You know, working with doctors, working with founders, help position them and get ready for prime time transaction and then running a really good process. So that was about seven, eight years ago. And so I founded Logan Growth Advisors with an emphasis on helping folks get ready for prime time transaction, running a really great process, and then, you know, seeing it through to the end, kind of a full service soup to nuts offering. And it's been great. What we've noticed is there's kind of this donut hole where, you know, bigger deals get serviced really well by bigger investment banks, really small, you know, single locations get serviced really well by, you know, the mom and pop brokers. But in between that, call it five to 20 locations, they're just, there haven't been a lot of really good solutions, not a lot of sophisticated advisors out there. So, you know, I think it was somewhat haphazard that I entered the space, but it ended up being a wonderful place to be. So you found out, you figured out your skill set was more in doing, helping facilitate transactions than it was managing a practice, but managing the practice gave you the experience to be able to talk their language and help them do what they need to do. It was an expensive and difficult education, but it was definitely a worthwhile education. Just having that empathy. And even now, I'm in investor meetings and I've been in their shoes. I know the private equity playbook really well. I'm a professor of private equity venture capital M&A. So I understand their playbook very well. But when I hear some of their questions, knowing that they just don't have operating experience, it baffles me sometimes. So having that experience has been so helpful. Not only to didn't. It's a shame you didn't get like a diploma or three letters behind your name for for that education. <laughs> right. I mean, I have an MBA. That was great. But I tell you what, the two years running the dental group, that was my real MBA. Yeah. So tell me about the professorship at BYU because you created a course there, didn't you? I did. Yeah. It's about seven, eight years ago, similar time when I started the dental group. Up until that time, I'd had dozens and dozens of interns from different universities. I went to BYU, so I had connections there. And, you know, I I love giving back. I love helping these kids learn and, you know, help accelerate the career. I was the first to go in business in my family. And so I've had really good mentors along the way. So it's been nice to pay it forward. So I I approached BYU eight or so years ago and I said, hey, guys, we really need a class on private equity, venture capital, mergers and acquisitions. It doesn't need to be a black box. And oh, by the way, here's the curriculum. I've already developed it. And they said, oh, geez, wow, you're serious. I'm like, yeah, I'm dead serious. And so they said, we get a lot of suggestions from alumni, but rarely do they actually implement what they're suggesting like you did. So let's give this some real consideration. So I went through the bureaucracy for about a year, got approved. So I've been teaching there going on six years now. And it's really fun. It's very fulfilling working with the kids, you know, helping them learn and also just being really in sync with the private equity world. Now I see a lot of my students are now on Wall Street or in, in private equity. So it's kind of interesting that it's gone full circle. So let's go back to your first transaction where they were under LOI for $20 million. You cleaned them up and they ended up selling for $40 million. Talk about the changes that were made to double the sales price. And what was the time uh, in between those two transactions? A little less than a year. So there's a few key levers. The first is EBITDA. So Which, by the way, I mean, EBITDA drives me nuts because earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. So you would think it would be a set formula, but every private equity group measures it differently. And oh, by the way, there's this really rich guy named Charlie Munger. Have you heard of him before? Mm-hmm. Google what he says about EBITDA. 
He's yeah, not very kind. He calls it BS earnings. But so first of all, let me stop, interrupt you and ask you, why does every private equity group measure EBITDA differently? It's a conundrum, Ross. Unfortunately, EBITDA is not a generally accepted accounting principle. So because of that, it's not necessarily objective. There's a lot of subjectivity. It shouldn't be. It should just be earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization over a 12-month look back. But the problem is we value a business based on what it is today, not necessarily what it was 12 months ago. So as you look back 12 months, there may have been significant changes in the business. You could have acquired additional practices, hired you know, a group of orthodontists or, you know, open up a, a, a few uh, more operatories, et cetera. So a lot of times what we do is we make pro forma adjustments to pro forma what those changes in the business were, you know, trailing going back 12 months. And so that's where a lot of the negotiation can happen is, hey, what is the business today? All right. Now, how do we extrapolate that over the past 12 months? Some of those pro forma adjustments, but there's also one time expenses attorney expenses that are one-time, seller discretionary expenses, those are added back. You know, we're not the IRS. We go in, we, we see no new opportunity. We tell them, hey, full disclosure with us. We're not the IRS. Just let us know everything that's personal, everything that's one-time, that's okay. We're going to add that back. But we, we do it in a way that's defensible. We see a lot of other groups make add backs that aren't, you know, hey, this is a 20% uh, of your revenue goes towards supplies, but you're an implant center. All right, well, we're going to take that down to 5% because we think that's the industry standard. Well, it's not if it's an implant center. So we've seen deals die because folks have proposed addbacks that are completely bogus that aren't defensible. So sure, you want to be aggressive, but also defensible. And there's a lot of negotiation, unfortunately, even with EBITDA should be an objective measure. So what were you able to do to get that group to go from 20 million sell price to 40 million sell price? So there's a few things. First was optimize EBITDA. So did the quality of earnings report from the sell side. So not just relying on the buyer to come in with their third party and do their own analysis because they know who pays their bill. They're not incentivized to find those golden nuggets. They're not gonna give you pro forma adjustments. So if we do it, we're gonna work really hard to find all those hidden golden nuggets to give you the most aggressive, but still defensible EBITDA possible. So that was the first step. The second step was optimizing the multiple through competitive tension. So you go to market, don't just do a proprietary deal negotiating with one party. I've been on the buy side. We, that, proprietary deal is like the holy grail. If you can just get, if you can have one deal locked up under LOI and they've talked to nobody else, you know you're gonna get better terms. So we flip that on its head. All right, let's talk to multiple parties in a blind auction. They don't know who's competing to win the deal. It's like instead of being on Shark Tank, you're interrogated by a few different groups and, you know, maybe you can get a deal done, maybe not. Now you're Bachelorette. You have 20 different suitors. All right. Now you're making them qualify themselves to you. And it gets things get crazy sometimes when there's that competitive tension. I've seen buyers do amazing, crazy things, and I've done crazy things when I've been on the buy side, knowing that I had to put money to work. I got to get a deal done. I have conviction. I I, I got to win this deal. All right. What is it going to take? I'm going to do whatever it takes. Well, you see, obviously healthcare is a steady, reliable place. You're typically not going to lose money. 
And these funds have money that they have to put to work by contract. So they've got to buy stuff. And that's what's partially pushing this, this trend. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So the typical private equity model is you raise a fund, you have five years to deploy that money to make investments. And then you have another five years to harvest those investments or sell, sell the companies. So it's usually a 10 year window. And depending so, on where the fund is in the life cycle, they may be really urgent to put money to work. How long do you think this trend lasts? The trend of private equity putting money to work or yeah. just private equity in the dental space? DSOs buying stuff up. You know, seven or eight years ago when I did my DSO, I felt like I had a five-year window before Wall Street kind of moved on to the next thing. But it... That five-year window came and went, and it is still extremely robust, maybe more so, because it's such a big, fragmented industry, and it's still largely fragmented. So the whole private equity thesis rests upon this specific thing, multiple arbitrage. So that's I, I love teaching that to my students. because well, Let's, like let's talk about word. it right now. Lay it out for everyone here. Yeah, it's the coolest word, okay? Multiple arbitrage. I want, I want everyone to use this this weekend – and whoever they're, you know, in, in a random conversation, just throw it in there. So multiple arbitrage, arbitrage by nature means you have an asset or you buy an asset in a specific market that's worth X. And then you take it to a different market. You don't actually increase the intrinsic value of that asset, but because it's sold in a different market, it's worth more. So you just make a spread. You make an arbitrage just by selling it in a different market. But, but the underlying like if I could borrow that's money at 5%, but I could get 9% on that money somewhere else, I have an arbitrage of 4%. Exactly. So multiple arbitrage refers to the valuation multiple. So if I am private equity investor, I got to pay to play. I got to pay to get in the game. I got to pay 12 times to buy this platform. You know, 5 million of EBITDA, nice payer mix, good management team, et cetera. But now that I'm in the game, I can go buy a bunch of onesies and twosies or small groups for four, five, six times. But immediately when I buy that additional million dollars of EBITDA for seven, you know, six, seven times, now that it's bolted onto my platform, that same EBITDA is now worth 12 times. So and that- this, this explains why when you sell to private equity, you know, we're going to give you seven times your EBITDA multiple, but- we're going to hold back 30% or 40% or 20% depending on the deal. And they're going to roll up, but then you get, you get stock in our company, but then we're going to sell or roll up, as they say, to a bigger DSO three to five years down the road at a 20, at a 20X multiple, and you're going to get unicorns and fairy dust in your bank account. Yep. That's the pitch. That's the pitch. And so- I have a dumb idea, so I've got 80 practices, and I just bought you, and we're going to roll up and sell to Heartland in five years. That's basically what they're playing, right? Right, or another private equity. Yeah. But, like, all these predictions, how realistic are these roll-up proposals, suggestions, you know, what, what they're saying is actually happening? How, how realistic is that? My contention is it's not, but I also may not have a clue what I'm talking about. There's things I like about it, and there's things I don't like about it. What I like is that bigger is generally better. So the law of large numbers, you know, if you do actuarial analysis, if you have a lot of practices, one or two of them may get sick, a few of them may do well as the portfolio theory. So the more you aggregate, the more you diversify your portfolio, it should have more stable returns. And they're obviously getting 
you know, the Walmart effect that you're buying in bulk. So you're getting cost savings and efficiencies from that standpoint. Right. Now, I feel like the dental efficiencies are fewer than the medical efficiencies because in medical, you have more leverage with payers and that's everything. If you can get better contracts with payers, you win in dental. There's some of that, but it's just less reliant on specific rates, but you still get some synergies with cost savings and recruiting, et cetera. So yeah, there's, there's definitely this synergies there, but this is largely driven by multiple arbitrage because bigger is better because bigger means less risk and therefore bigger investors are willing to pay more if they're investing in a less risky asset. Meaning that, oh, I'm buying 200 practices. That is less risky than buying 20. Exactly. Yep. And so this can weather a storm. This has a, you know, a team involved. This has more, more durable than a smaller group. And so because I'm selling my 80 practice DSO to a mega DSO that has 500, they're willing to pay 15, 16, 18x, whatever the numbers are, when I bought them for eight or nine x. Potentially. So this whole thesis is based upon the next guy trading at a higher multiple. The bigger guy is always trading at higher multiples and therefore being able to buy the smaller guys for less than what they're trading at and still getting that arbitrage. This may make me sound like a fool, but you know what that sounds like to me? Sounds like the greater fool theory, which was the whole premise of what the 2000, you know, early 2000s real estate bubble was was based on and went crumbling down in 2008. Now, I'm not suggesting that is what's going to happen here, but it sure sounds very similar the way you describe it. It's predicated on the next guy being able to transact at a higher multiple. So, well, how much of that's interest rate driven? Because uh, we've had free money for 12 years. Now, this year, it's I mean, it's currently December 2022 when we're recording this. So this year, rates have gone from zero to 4% on the 10-year treasury. It's about three and a half now, which is still ridiculously low historically. Is that having gonna, an effect or will it have an effect if it continues rising? I, I play a game with my, my university students called Would You Rather? And... Choose two options. Which is the better option for your investment? One is let's reduce interest rates by 3%, which is a lot. I mean, it's a huge percentage. If you can just say reduce your senior debt interest rate by 3% or increase growth by 1%, what's better? And growth trumps trumps interest rate tremendously. It's not even close. It's not even close. So People get so fixated on this interest rate concept that, oh, this is going to drive returns, this is going to dry up private equity, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't. It's not that big of a deal. What is a big deal is liquidity. So if credit markets get squeezed, they're not willing to lend as freely as they were before. So instead of lending you know, five times EBITDA on a $10 million EBITDA deal, now they're going to lend four times. That means the equity guys have to come up with more equity. Equity is way more expensive. That's what's going to drive down your multiple less than the specific interest rate. So that's what's impacting us today is more the credit squeeze versus the interest rates. That's that's very interesting. So what about, you're dealing typically with multi-site uh, practices. What is the your average client who you're helping sell their practice? How many locations do they have typically? Average, probably 12. So these are large practices, relatively speaking. This isn't the person with one, maybe two locations. So these people, I talk a lot about 
the continuum in the dental world of solo practice kind of owns a job. It's a good job, but they own a job, a lifestyle practice maybe versus the business owner who happens to be a dentist. But that's what you're dealing with even at another level when you own 15 practices. These are truly business owners in this respect. What do you see that's the difference in these type of dentists versus the quote normal or one or two location practice dentists in your experience? Because when you owned the practice, how many practices did you have when you were running one? I started with just four. Yeah. Okay. Which is still a lot compared to relatively speaking, but um, but you've been around a lot of these people. What do you see as the typical difference in the way they operate, the way they look at things? There's this inflection point. Once you get to around five practices, now the lender doesn't want to lend anymore to you because you're perceived as risk. When you say growth, your bank, here's risk. It's like if you go buy too many rental properties, you, you, you get moved from the residential lender to the commercial lender, all of a sudden the terms aren't near as good. Exactly. So the bank doesn't even know what to do with you anymore. So it's hard to grow from a lending and a capital perspective. Now it's hard to be chair side in every practice and continue to operate, you know, work. you're wearing so many hats. So you're chief everything, right? You don't have a management team yet. You're still chair side. You're just, you're so much administrative complexity. So this is the pivot or persevere moment where a lot of folks say, geez, this is not worth it. I'm going to sell or I'm going to scale down and just get my life back in order. Or some people persevere through that, get creative, figure out, you know, different financing options, et cetera, bring in partners to grow kind of past that, you know, past that roadblock or past that glass ceiling. Once you make it past that, then the world really opens up. There's a lot of options. But what's interesting today is there's a lot of DSOs that have come up with some unique structures that can make for some interesting partnerships, even for the groups of five. So now we're doing deals with groups of five, groups of three. It used to be kind of 15, 20 was where we play, but now some of the sophistication that we provide is really highly valued, even at a group of five. Wow. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So, you know, what would you say, or what, what piece of advice would you give if someone came to you and said, Hey, I'm pretty successful. I'm a dentist, I'm an orthodontist, whatever. And I'm making X amount of dollars. And, you know, I could walk away and sell this thing for, you know, whatever, but should I, what, what would you say what advice would you give to someone who's really successful and they have the option of selling or keeping or, um, but they don't know what to do? You got to dig into what they really want. Selling is not the right answer for everybody and maybe even not the majority. I mean, if you have a great practice, a great business, you have a good lifestyle, you're happy, why disrupt that? I mean, you're doing great. Continue doing what you're doing. There are a, a subset of, go ahead. Oh, I had a guy, I've told this story several times, late 40s, sold his practice for like maybe 10 million bucks. I'm not exactly sure what the number was. And I said to him, what are you going to do now, now that you've sold your practice? He says, I'm going to manage my investments. And I said, brother, you ain't that rich. You know, I mean, $10 million seems like a lot in the big scheme of things. It's not. And what's funny is I had a guy call me last week and say, hey, were you talking about me? And I said, I'm dying. I'm like, no, I'm not talking about you. But there were definitely some elements of overlap in that example. And he, he's probably going to be listening to this when this comes on. And uh, what's funny is he completely regrets selling now. Completely regrets it. I mean, there and there's so many reasons why. 
and I could go down the list, but for some people, it does make a lot of sense to sell, but for some people, I mean, but he lives in a small town. And so, you know, he was the community dentist. I mean, there, there's definitely some emotional reasons he wishes he didn't sell, but there's obviously some financial reasons he wishes he didn't sell either. Um, it, it just becomes so sexy to sell. And I, I just feel like it's a short-term decision versus a long-term decision. And I'm biased. I personally think, you know, your practice is the golden goose. You know, owning a business is the greatest way to create wealth. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to disagree with me, and, and that's fine. Transactions that I've seen work well are when a dentist can achieve three things. The first is a lot of times they just want a liquidity event. They say, hey, Bob, you know, all my net worth is tied up in this illiquid asset. I assume it's going to continue to perform well for the years to come, but I don't know. Like who, who knows what the future holds? I sure would sleep better at night if I had, you know, a couple more commas in my bank account. I'm like, okay, yeah, can't argue with that. The second is, but I don't want to retire. I'm not ready to, you know, to be done. I still want to do my thing. I still want to run the show. Is there a way that I can still, you know, have heavy involvement, do continue doing what I'm doing, but just be de-risked and still have plenty of upside? You know, I still want to have skin in the game. I still want to have upside. And then the third is, but it would be nice if I could remove some of the administrative burden. I don't want to be chief of everything anymore. I don't want to deal with all the HR issues. Is there a way I could get a partner that can take some of that off my shoulders? You know, I'm still heavily involved. I still am doing what I like to do you know, growth orientation, working with doctors, potentially producing some dentistry, and then, you know, have a liquidity event. Those are the situations that have worked well and that folks are excited about. And, you know, six months, a year later, they say, yep, this still makes a ton of sense. If you don't have all three of those, I could see, I could see regret for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, it gets kind of, I mean, it sounds sexy to sell your practice for, you know, however much of whatever multiple, and I've heard some amazing stories, but I've also heard some horror stories too. And I mean, as we all have. So yep. as we kind of wind down here, if someone was a brand new dentist fresh out of dental school, or they were buying a practice today, you know, they've been an associate for a couple of years and they're buying a practice. What advice would you give them? Get as good at your craft as possible. Take the CEs, learn to do implants, learn to be the one-stop shop and a very respectable dentist. Focus on that first. The business will come. If you're a really, really good dentist, learning how to be a good businessman, you can surround yourself with other people. That will come. Just focus on your craft. And don't get so focused on, hey, I need to own 10 practices. You know, oh, my, you know, my brother's uncle, whatever, owns, you know, 15 practices and made a huge multiple and People get so fixated on that concept of, hey, now this is just a business of flipping and making money versus, no, I'm, I'm actually here to be a, a good provider. That piece of the industry, people going to the DSO conferences and everyone just throwing out these crazy multiples, everyone's super excited about Wall Street. I don't go, I hardly ever go. To, if they ask me to speak, I'll go. Otherwise, I don't go to those conferences because it's just, it's, oh, it's just nauseating sometimes to hear this stuff. No, just get really good at your craft and opportunities will come. Well, and like you said, like the uncle who sold 15 practices for a big multiple, he's probably viewed as like an overnight success, but it was probably 20 or 30 years in the making. Right. Yeah. He's gone through the hard things. He's he's refined his craft. He's done the heavy lifting to get there. So don't think you're going to get there overnight. You know, don't think you need to be him tomorrow. Just focus on taking it day by day, getting really good at what you do. 
the people we work with have done really well. It's been a grind. They've put in the time. It has been difficult to get where they are, and they've earned it. Yeah, that, that that's that's great advice. Well, Bob, I really appreciate you coming on today. If people want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you? Send me an email, bwinder at logangrowth.com. That's probably the best way. So that's B-W-I-N-D-R at logangrowth.com. So once again, right. Bob, thanks so much for coming on today. Great to be on with you, Ross. Thank you. You've been listening to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannon. This has been another episode of Financial Flossing with Ross Brannon, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. If you liked what you heard, consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. For more on Ross Brannon, visit rossbrannon.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers of their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Paz, Guardian, or North Florida Financial, and opinions stated are their own. External sites and materials are provided for your convenience in locating related information services. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees expressly disclaim any responsibility for and do not maintain, control, recommend, or endorse third-party sites, organizations, products, or services, and make no representation as to the completeness, suitability, or quality thereof. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664, Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Security products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License Number 16139032. California Insurance License Number OL10073. 2023-149123 expires 125. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>